I remember a couple of years ago when we had that really intense winter and the polar vortex moved down into the state. And I remember this feeling of hope that I had actually during that cold that maybe climate change wasn't as dramatic as it had been seeming. It was a real Minnesota winter after all. So cold, in fact, that I remember going outside with my family and blowing bubbles in this freezing air and they froze and then they would shatter and there'd be these little shards of bubble blowing around, these little eddies around the house in the backyard. That winter, the airplanes taking off from the airport had this really strange high-pitched whine because the air was so cold and so brittle. And for a few weeks, I imagined everything was okay with planet Earth. And even this winter, given how long it's been, there's been a part of me that has really deeply hoped and believed that everything is okay with the climate, that this winter is a sign that things are not so badly out of whack. And then I read about the jet stream, and maybe you've been reading about the jet stream. I don't know. That's maybe evening reading, some of you, bedtime reading, some of you do. I don't know. The jet stream is this powerful river of wind, five to 10 miles above the surface of the earth. And the jet stream is weakening and wobbling. And the Arctic ice on the North Pole, which is essentially our planetary AC system, is rapidly melting. And it's because of that melt and the wobble and warm air pushing and buckling the jet stream that cold air has been resting in Minnesota for so long, why it's been cold and blizzardy. It's just because things are out of whack with the jet stream. And then that feeling, the one that I've had for a year and then another year, and it's probably been 10, 15 years now, this feeling, this feeling in the background of my life that comes and goes, that feeling comes back. That feeling of grief, of a broken heart, that feeling of incredible sadness, of despair for what is to come for our shared planet. Those who study the science and climate of the planet and those who intimately know the rhythms and the cycles and the seasons and the patterns of birds and animals, they're all saying the same thing. We've gone too far. We've pushed too hard. We've extracted and consumed too much. We've disrupted the very system that our life depends on. We've entered a new geological era, the Anthropocene, a time defined by human activity that impacts the environment. Evidence of this is everywhere. It is the ocean filled with trash. There's an island twice the size of Texas of trash. I'm sure you've seen those pictures floating around. There's soot from power plants found everywhere around the globe. We're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction and the climate is changing based on human activity. Friends, one of the things we do as a faith community is hold what feels intolerable. We hold truths that feel impossible to hold, and what I'm sharing with you, if you are paying attention, you know it's true. British scientist Chris Rapley says this, since the planet is our life support system, and we are essentially the crew of this large spaceship, interference with its functioning at this level the level we're interfering with its functioning is highly significant, he says. He goes on, if you or I were crew on a smaller spacecraft, it would be unthinkable to interfere with the systems that provided us with air and food and water and climate control. But the shift into the Anthropocene tells us that we are playing with fire 
a potentially reckless mode of behavior which we are likely to come to regret unless we get a grip on this situation. We are being reckless. And the grief bubbles up in me every day. I scan the headlines of the news, read about the oceans, the acidification of the oceans, the loss of marine life, new records for heat or rainfall or drought or snow. There's not another way to say this. All of the planetary alarm systems are going off right now. And despite the beauty of this earth, despite that beauty we sang about, despite how much I love this earth in the North Shore, and I love the soil I can sink my fingers into and plant and turn over and watch this miracle happen as I restore native prairie in my front yard. I don't know what the neighbors think, but there's a wild prairie in the front yard of our house. And it brings me joy to garden and to plant vegetables. All of that is true. And it feels like I'm living in this slow motion horror film, a train wreck I can see coming but can't prevent. What I'm feeling is ecological grief, a term I recently came across. It's described as the grief felt in relation to experienced or anticipated ecological losses. This is the grief we feel when we imagine summer heat waves of 110 degrees for months on end. And we wonder how are our children and our grandchildren and other children survive in that? How will they cope? This is the grief we feel as the glaciers disappear and with them whole water supplies for communities. This is the grief we feel when we think about the boundary waters becoming a prairie. The article explains people also grieve for lost environmental knowledge and the self-identity that can be lost when the land upon which it is based changes or disappears. This is ecological grief. And this is the moment we're in. Still drunk on fossil fuels, careening through wildfires and floods, blizzards and droughts, racing toward a future of ever greater mass migrations, racing toward heat waves and water wars, racing toward our life support system being on hospice care. This is the grief I feel. This is the grief many of us feel, and I have taken us this morning into the deep end of that despair and that grief. And I'm guessing you're either there with me, because there's an honest reckoning with the grief you carry, and you're feeling your own grief and despair, or you're resisting this heaviness, you're pushing back against me in your head. There's a counter argument, it's not that bad, Justin. You don't really get it. You don't understand climate change. You're just a minister, not a scientist. We'll be fine, we'll be fine. Whatever it is you're feeling, that's all right. I invite you to just be with that feeling and just stick with me for a minute more because I want to tell you what happens next in this cycle for me, and you can check that against your own response. And this cycle I'm talking about is this moment of despair and grief and how I move through that. And in those moments, I often turn to the spirit of life, to my God as I understand God, to this abundant spirit of love and creation, and I turn and I listen and I hear this voice that says to me, Justin, who benefits from your hopelessness? Who benefits from your despair? 
It's not the earth or the people of this planet most impacted by climate change. It's not children or the rivers or the oceans. And so in that despair and having that reminder, I pick myself up out of that despair and I decide to act. And over the years, here's how my, some of my actions have looked as I move through this cycle of grief and despair in action. I untwist every old light bulb in my house and put in a compact fluorescent. I sell my gas mower and get a push mower. I sign up for wind power. I donate to environmental organizations. I compost and I recycle. And I wonder what this looks like in your life, this movement through grief and despair in action. Maybe if you can, you install solar panels or you buy a Prius or an electric car. Perhaps you join a community-supported agriculture program. You buy local. You pick up trash. You write your representatives. You donate money. You do something. You do something because it is urgent and time is running out. This is the cycle of grief and despair and action that I know in my own life. Maybe you know it as well. And I got caught up in this cycle of grief, despair, and action a couple of years ago when Lake Calhoun was in the news. And it turns out John C. Calhoun, who the lake is named after, was a guy well-known for his pro-slavery views. He thought slavery was a good thing. And well-known for his authorship of the initial drafts of the Indian Removal Act. John Calhoun was also a founding member of All Souls Unitarian Church in Washington, D.C., which I didn't know when I started researching John Calhoun. So this was someone from my faith tradition, someone who highlighted the complexities within our faith tradition. Yes, we claim abolitionists and suffragettes and all these amazing activists from our tradition and John Calhoun is in our tradition as well. And so this was someone from my faith tradition, and I felt the urge to act, to make this right, to do what I could within my sphere of influence in my own faith community to restore the original name, Mede Makaska, to this body of water. And so then acting out of the white supremacy culture that I know so well, and this isn't a judgment, I'm just, I'm racialized white, and I know the white supremacy culture because I live in it and breathe in it, and that culture is grounded in efficiency and getting things done. So I went forth and figured out how you would change the name of the lake, and then I began collecting signatures. Many of you probably signed the signature petition form I had. And at the same time, I began to reach out to indigenous leaders in the Twin Cities to see if and how we might work together to collect signatures. In this way, I met Lemoyne Lapointe and his two sons, Thorne and Waukeon, and I shared with them my enthusiasm for taking this petition to the Hennepin County Board and then to the Department of Natural Resources to ultimately restore the name of the lake. I was on fire. Lemoyne and his sons, though, gently suggested a different starting point. And they said to me, Lemoyne said to me, and this was echoed many times, what if we started with relationships? All right, all right. What if we started with relationships with native and non-native people gathered together to listen, to dream, to imagine entirely new ways of being together? What if we had some community conversations about the spirit of this body of water, about the sacredness of this body of water, about water in general, the earth in general? What if we started there? The name restoration might come out of this work, yes, but first, let's establish a culture of respect for Bidemakaska. Let's build a community that wants to create a better future.
So I slowly put the brakes on the signature collection process. And a team of congregants and I began to meet with Thorne and Waukeon and Lemoyne and others to plan these gatherings. We got to know one another. We spent time listening and telling stories. One of our team members went to Standing Rock with the LaPointe family. And now for over two years, we've been hosting these Mede Makaska conversations. We've been inviting community members in and elected officials and park board task force members and many others to join us. Over you know, 100 people plus have participated in these conversations. Out of these efforts, we've learned about the history of Bede Makaska, the history of Cloudman's village on the edge of the lake. We met Cloudman's descendants and we heard stories of the land and language of the first people who were here. We came to understand that indigenous people have the most sustainable water and land ethic in the world, and that this effort is about giving the earth back its original names and rights as a living being. It's about trees and riverways and bodies of water having rights as living beings. Last August, this planning team helped launch Minikiwakan, Water is Sacred, this decade of water, this summit that was going to happen over a decade. And the first one was hosted here. There's another summit that will happen in, this, in August. Uh, and it was designed to bring together indigenous people from around the world to put forth a bold vision of restored relationships with water and our planet. Adrienne Marie Brown, author and activist, reminds us that critical relationships, not critical mass, is what's important. She reminds us that our climate condition is not going to get better anytime soon. There's nothing that indicates that collectively we're going to suddenly turn around and start getting back into right relationships with ourselves and the planet. So then, she says, we have to be in small compelling experiments. We have to be in small, compelling experiments and deep organic relationships as we seek to create and sustain just ways of being. We don't know what will take root. We don't know where the relationships will go or what will happen. We don't know how they will spread and shape our collective thinking. So we have to just put these bets down on these small, compelling experiments. As Thorne and Wakian have said to me, we know that the doctrine of discovery, a doctrine that allowed all land not owned by Christians to be discovered and claimed and exploited and utilized by Christians, we know that that doctrine has created havoc for indigenous people for 500 years. And I wonder if these small, compelling experiments can help us begin to live a doctrine of recovery for the next 500 years, a doctrine of recovering indigenous wisdom, recovering relationships that sustain us and fuel us, recovering respect for the land and the water and the air. Of course, the work is urgent. Yes, the work is urgent, especially when it comes to the climate. But as Adrian Marie Brown points out, there's always enough time for the right work. There's always enough time for the right work. There's always enough time for ensuring that efficiency doesn't get in the way of relationships, for ensuring that those who have been ignored or exploited are heard and followed and listened to, for ensuring that we don't repeat the patterns that got us here. 
out of our grief and our despair and our desire to act, we can set a new pattern that can slowly dismantle the white supremacy culture, the culture that got us into this mess in the first place. And so when I look back over the years, when I look back, I see that very few of my early earth-friendly, urgent actions were really grounded in deep relationship. They were individual actions in a culture that worships the individual. There was no community behind them. Individual actions matter, of course they do. Don't hear me wrong on this, but they only go so far. It's in authentic relationships with others that we are sustained, that we can push back against the weight of despair, where we can make room for hope, where we can discover our shared humanity and our desire for a more just future. Obviously, this is not a quick fix. The mess we are in is not going to get fixed in a year or in a decade. It is definitely not going to get fixed when we act in isolation. The next move is to get in small, compelling experiments of human relationship. The next move is all about process, not efficiency and outcomes. So I wonder, friends, I wonder, knowing that both grief and desire to act are real, I wonder this. What small, compelling experiments in human relationships are you willing to join on this Earth Day? Maybe you want to learn more about the Just Solar project we're involved in. Maybe in the social hall you'd like to meet Ed Owens. Ed's, I think, in the service with us. Ed's back there. He's the St. Paul NAACP vice president and leader of their environmental justice effort. Maybe you'd like to join me and Ed and other congregants at this banquet on April 26th, where they will connect the dots between economic prosperity and clean energy and development in historically marginalized communities. Maybe you want to know more about what just solar looks like so low-income people have access to clean energy. Low-income, historically marginalized people have access to the jobs in this booming industry. Learn more about that. Or maybe you'd like to learn more about Miniki Wakan, this Decade of Water Summit or the Mede Makaska Community Conversations and how to be involved. You can learn more downstairs. Or maybe you'd like to learn more about our immigration justice and sanctuary and resistance work, which is ultimately connected to the climate and to migration based on climate change. This is your homework. Wherever you are in your life, whatever grief or despair you're carrying, your homework is to find a path to be in a small, compelling experiment of human relations. Your homework is not to be duped by the feeling that says there's nothing to be done. Your, your homework is not to be confused and think this feeling is just intolerable, so I'm going to push it away and do nothing. Your homework is to find a small, compelling experiment of human relationships and to step into that. What critical relationships are you willing to enter into and be changed by? May we hold our ecological grief as a community of faith in relationship with one another and may this feeling that sometimes feels intolerable be a catalyst for human change. Amen.
I invite you to take a hand or link arms with someone, put a hand on a shoulder. As we hurl through this galaxy on this beautiful blue boat home, may we take small, compelling experiments in human relationship. May we be blessed and be a blessing. Amen.